Good morning. Uh, or afternoon, depending on where you're uh, viewing the show from. Um, welcome to another episode of uh, the Indoor Environment Show. Um, I'm Bob Krell, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Don Weeks, who is the president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA. -E I'll get it straight, Don. Hi, Good how are you doing you. today? Good to see you too. We have uh, this a is special show today. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have a, a live events. Live events seem to be our, our thing now. Um, just less than a month ago, you and I were together in person in Nashville, Tennessee for the uh, AIHCE uh, event. That, that was uh, that was interesting because that was our first time doing the show sitting at a table together. So yeah, uh, now yeah. you're back in Ottawa and I'm back in Syracuse and we're doing it uh, conventionally. So Yeah, it's good to be back, though. I'm, I'm looking forward to today's meeting, today's uh, yeah. um, session broadcast. So, so today's show is interesting uh, because we actually have our guests coming to us live uh, from Finland, right? Right now from the mm -hmm. uh, from the Indoor Air 2022 event, which is uh, fa fabulous. Uh, they're on a little bit of a different time zone, so they're coming to us late in the day and we're in the morning, but that's all good. So I guess without further ado, Don, I'll let you uh, go through the introductions. Yeah, we have... Uh three members of the uh, ISIAC, and first one is uh, Martin Tobel, member of the ISIAC Board of Directors and Coordinator of Relations and Other Organizations. Ms. Uh, Martin has 15 years of research experience in the topic of indoor mi uh, microbial exposure and the associated uh, adverse and beneficial health effects. He is working as a lead researcher at the Environmental Health uh, Unit of Finnish uh, Institute for Health and Welfare in Kopio, Finland, where he's heading a multidisciplinary research team studying indoor microbial exposures and associated health effects. Uh, the second guest is Corinne Manden, who is the president of ISIAC. She has 20 years of experience on human exposure to chemicals in indoor environment, indoor environments, first at, uh, at the INERIS, French National Institute for in Industrial, uh, industrial Environment and Risk, and now at, at, at CSTB, which is the French Scientific Technical Cent Center for Buildings that she joined in 2009. She leads a group of researchers in charge of implementing the French Indoor Air Quality Obs uh, Observatory, a permanent research program created by the French government in 2001 to carry out nationwide surveys of indoor air quality in buildings. And our third guest is Ula Havelman Shaughnessy, who is a former ISIAC vice president for research, and she's now chair of the ISIAC Science and Technical Committee on IEQ guidelines. She has over 25 years of experience in research pertaining to indoor and environmental quality and healthy buildings, and she's a visiting professor, senior research associate at the University of Tulsa since 2006, and also professor at the University of Ulu since 2020. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you very much. Thank I guess you. it would be yes. an excellent time just to make a quick pause and mention that uh, our broadcast is uh, a joint collaboration between uh, ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance. Yes, and this uh, is, is it, the uh, ISIAC Conference on Indoor Air. The Indoor Air Conference is just finished in Finland, and so I'm going to call upon uh, give us some uh, summarize the conference in a few words and figures thank you Don. before giving you a, a few figures i can remind our audience that we were in kopio in finland kopio is the eighth cities uh, in finland with uh, one and one hundred and twenty thousand inhabitants we are in in the lake district in eastern finland and this was a, this is a beautiful landscape and we had a wonderful conference in the middle of the the forest and the lakes 
so a few figures to about the conference. We were 606 participants, uh, 444 were on site, the other one were online. Uh, we were from 41 countries and uh, the top three countries with participants were Finland, of course, USA and Japan. Uh, we had a very rich program with a total of 49 sessions and 29 uh, workshops that we will uh, summarize in a few seconds. And just uh, last figures is about the summer school. We had a summer school for young, um, for PhD students and early career researchers on Saturday and Sunday with 40 participants from 17 countries. And it was very exciting to welcome these this future leaders in indoor sciences. Yes, tell me a little bit more about that um, that uh, student uh, activity, um, the school. That sounded really interesting to me, and and I was glad to hear about it. What 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 was the per what was the uh, overall theme or topic that you you covered in the in, the, in that uh, sessions? Karen? Yeah, Ma Martin Martin participated to the, the oh. summer school, so I let Martin say a few summer words school. about the topics and. The, mm. Well, uh, so in terms of the topics, it was it was sort of like a, a good mix uh, between some more lectures, like substance uh, presentations. So I've been teaching there uh, around the microbes in, in built environments. Uh, there were uh, sessions on online sensors, uh, and, and so was so there was there was some some substance there as well. But then uh, we thought that it would be really really good, and and this is all all the credits going there to to Kati Hutonen who. I think over half a year was was trying to to put together an, an interesting program for the students, and I think they loved it. Uh, but but they did have hands-on experience as well, working with uh, online sensor measurements and sensor data. Uh, they did learn about you know why it would be a good idea to be on Twitter and what to do, and especially what not to do on Twitter. Hmm. Uh, so kind of like also um, you know getting some information about. Uh, how to to do a good poster presentation and this kind of like skill development as well. So not only substance because you can you can get substance from anywhere. But there was I think the biggest charm of that uh, summer school is that the students are kind of like uh, you know locked in together with with some of the senior scientists that have a lot of experience and and can show them the ropes and tell like you know how did I end up here and how did my career develop and I think this is what the students really were most interested in. Having the ability to uh, to do hands on and actually, you know, you know, have have a true experience, I think, is super valuable. Uh, that, that seems very uh, forward thinking. Great, that's terrific. Uh, so, one of the things that uh, we wanted to talk about is the many workshops during the convention. And can you give us a kind of an overview of what the what were the topics that were described, discussed? Sure. Um, so I, I also wanted to mention that the conference president was Professor Berti Pasanen from the University of Eastern Finland and in the organizing got a lot of help from FISIAC, the Finnish Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate. And, and then we had uh, Professor Heidi Salonen from Aalto University who is in charge of the technical program. And I had the smaller role of uh, being in charge of the workshops. But um, so like Corinne mentioned, we had a total of 29 workshops uh, in the conference. And um, uh, if just the general overview, we, I sort of categorized them in according to different topics. And we had work, six workshops on uh, special environments, including hospitals, schools, and residential buildings. Then we had six 
workshop on different methodologies, five workshops on exposures, three on health outcomes, and then six workshops on different mitigation strategies and four workshops on guidelines. So, so many excellent topics and workshops and active discussion and, and uh, communication during the workshops. Great, yeah. Were there, were there a few workshops that were a focus for the conference and maybe you can describe them in some detail, you and Corinne? Yeah, I can mention two two specific workshop workshop to start. We had a workshop on burden of disease. I don't know if our audience is familiar with burden of disease, but this is the way to to quantify the impacts of uh, an environmental risk, uh, to quantify in terms of premature deaths or in terms of years of life with a disease. So it's very useful to 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 have such uh, figures for policymakers to 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 decide what if uh, an environmental issue is more important than another one. So it's more and more used and uh, it's used also for indoor air science researchers to to, to hierarchize the priorities. And um, so we had a workshop dedicated to this because we now in several countries in the world, in the world, such evaluation have been made in France, for example, or recently in China. And um, in addition to the number of people who die prematurely or who are sick, due to indoor air pollution, we can also express this uh, impact in terms of uh, euro or yuan or dollars. So once again, it, it helps uh, dimensioning a, a political, um, scientific and public health issue. And um, for example, in France, when we calculated the burden of disease due to indoor air pollution, we, we came to the figures of that this pollution is equivalent, the cost of this pollution is equivalent to 1% of the GDP. And in China recently, they, they did this calculation and uh, the cost is 3.4% of GDP. So it shows that it has a huge impact on, on the society, on the country, this, this pollution. And, and now we, we advocate that for, for uh, the inclusion of indoor air pollution in the global burden of disease, because um, it's an, an international initiative started in the 80s by the World Bank to, to quantify the impact of uh, environmental risk uh, and to quantify the impact of the diseases. And this global burden of disease is, is done regularly since the 80s. Now it's it's carried out by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But this, it does not include indoor air pollution. It, in, it includes outdoor air pollution, uh, car accidents, and many, many types of risks and many types of diseases. But indoor air pollution is, is not included. So we want, we, we, we would like that um, ISIAC and all the indoor air science community is able to, to include uh, this um, indoor air pollution in, in this evaluation to show that it has an impact. It must be taken into account. Those are substantial um, numbers, though, Corinne. I mean, you know, one to three percent GDP effect by that. That's exactly. billions of dollars. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's in France when it's indoor air pollution is uh, twenty thousand death, premature deaths per year. So it's it's not it's non negligible. It's important, and calculating such figures helps make the, the pollution real because indoor air pollution is not real for many people. So with COVID, with the pandemic, uh, awareness was raised on indoor air quality, but before it was not, not the case. So, so that's why we had this workshop to, to, discuss, to share methods because there is not harmonized methods. So we need to, to discuss about the methods, but also to see how we can move forward, how we can push this topic to be, to be more included in this global evaluation. And the second workshop I could mention is 
it was a workshop on radon because we uh, we observed that radon has disappeared from indoor air conferences over the time. So, but radon is a major indoor air pollutant as well. It's coming back to burden of disease in many countries. Radon is the number two in terms of death uh, or, or cancer. In, in so, it, it has a huge impact on public health. But radon has more or less disappeared. So, the idea was to to put radon again in the agenda of uh, indoor air conference. And um, ESIAC has a, has a partnership with ERA, the European Radon Association. And that's why we organized this, this workshop together to discuss about this, this topic and the mitigation. Because today it's easy to manage radon in buildings. There are many techniques, ventilation. Uh, there are, the tools exist, so there is no reason to, to ignore this topic. And we need to, to, to decrease radon concentration in buildings in radon-prone areas, not everywhere, of course, but uh, in dwellings that are subject to, to radon. Well, and, you know, important thing, I think, to stress is that usually the mitigation costs are negligible. It's not that expensive, especially for a single-family resident. Smaller buildings, uh, a radon mitigation system is not that costly. Uh, exactly. And quite, easy, quite easy. Several hours and the work is complete. Yeah, exactly. And in new buildings, it's easy to take into account this when you're building a new building. This is even easier than in existing buildings. So we must raise awareness about this this issue in in part of in the part of the world where where there is radon. So Martin and, and Ula, um, Ula, did you have some uh, more work uh, discussion on workshops that you uh, you organized? Yes, yes. I I was thinking one of the big topic that was discussed a lot during the conference is the use of low-cost sensors and all the challenges and opportunities that are related to those. And uh, there was also one workshop related to low-cost sensors and, uh, and uh, one of the main points raised in is, was, is that they do provide useful data to the users and, and building occupants, but we also have to explain what these data mean and what they don't mean and what we don't know yet. And then uh, we also, yes, go ahead. No, keep, no, sorry. So we then also have clo close to me was a workshop related to indoor environmental quality guidelines. And also in that workshop, we continued or we discussed about uh, building performance assessment and continuous monitoring. And, and uh, it came out very strongly that we need standardized methods on how to use these sensors and uh, monitors and how to interpret the results. And in general, the need of bringing scientists and practitioners from different countries together to share information about, about guidelines and best practices and, and to tackle these challenges globally. I, I, so I did have a question for you, Ula. So on the sensors that you're referring to, these are are these com commercial sensors, or are these more of the low cost things that you see in the consumer realm that you're discussing? I, I think they are both, both of those, and they are used also in research more more all the time. So, but there are challenges like related to the validity of the data and how to actually utilize all the information that we are collecting and what can be said based on based on them. Martin. Go ahead, Martin. So Martin. Yeah, Martin, I, you have I just something wanted to add? add on. Yeah, so, so I just wanted to add on. I think 
because we're always talking about you know expensive measurement equipment and low cost sensors and there's evolving something in between where companies are trying really to push the boundaries of of you know quality assurance and getting really really good data uh, with these uh, sensors and then you know it goes from uh, low cost to you know mid cost so we're talking about like a few hundreds of, of euros or dollars for for one of these devices but then they will integrate uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to uh, you know really um, leverage the, the potential and the wealth of data that they can generate and also utilize this in, in the calibration of the devices. And there's like really, really promising um, developments in terms of like how uh, accurate and, and how well, uh, how good data these sensors can produce. So I think it's it's a major, major step into the future. I mean, there certainly is question as far as standardization, right? Because there's so many different devices on the market and the, there really aren't in general, especially the low cost devices are really not following any, any real standardization from what I've seen. No, I agree. Yes. I agree. And, and, and this is exactly the area where the research is coming in and trying to, to really push. I, I think calibration is like the central, central, central mm -hmm. aspect in here. And, and, and mm -hmm. uh, this is where a lot of the improvement can be done and will be done. Sorry, Ola. Yes, and it was also discussed in one of the sessions or workshops that uh, these low-cost sensors may be particularly useful for building occupants who can themselves measure and uh, then for as long as they know how they can do what they can do to improve the situation if if they notice some uh, some issues with ventilation, for example, or or heating or or other pollutants. So, um, Ula, did, was there, you mentioned something about indoor air quality standards as well. Was there some discussion at this meeting about uh, the, the potential of setting standards for indoor air quality? Well, ISIAC has been working throughout this uh, scientific technical committee to collect information about existing guidelines and standards and also uh, making it openly available for anyone through, through a website that has been opened. And then that's like the first step when we start knowing what's out there and, uh, and, uh, and that can be used because uh, the many, many countries don't have indoor environmental quality guidelines, but, but we also have many countries who have them. So I think overall goal would be to have more uniform guidelines uh, globally existing, but there are also many challenges related to that and how, how we can how we can develop that kind of guidelines who would be applicable in different countries and different climates and and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, one of the big problems. I had Corinne, uh, sorry. Yes, yeah, <laughs> sorry, then we, we discussed during the conference that we need to move from um, from prescript, prescriptive assessment, qualitative assessment to performance-based assessment. We really need mm -hmm. to, yeah, to measure the performance of building and performance is energy, but it's also health and comfort. And so that's why we need both uh, low-cost sensors to be able to massively assess the performance of building. And we need standards and guidelines to be able also to, to qualify, to quantify the, the performance. So it, it was largely discussed during the conference. 
Well, that, that, and that certainly was one of the earlier uh, complaints about even the LEED program, right, from U.S. Green Building Council, uh, you know, because it was it was prescriptive. But, you know, as far as, you know, an actual practice a year later or several years later, was the building actually performing to those, uh, you know, those prescriptive standards? And, you know, they found often, right, uh, that that wasn't yeah. the case. We had a great uh, keynote uh, this morning from Dushan Lissina about this green building certification. How do building, how do certified buildings perform? Do they perform better than the classical buildings? And uh, this is during this keynote that Dushan Lissina introduced uh, that we need to move from a, a prescriptive uh, assessment to a, really a performance based based on measurement uh, to assess the, the real performance of buildings. So that brings up a point. I, I would have loved to have heard that uh, keynote. Um, where, where do you? Where does this extend as, as far as uh, sharing that type of uh, of um, session at this point? Where, where do we? Where, where are you going with that? Is there a possibility somebody who couldn't attend, for example, be able to pick up some of these uh, uh, sessions and be able to listen to them? Yeah, the keynotes are uh, available for free on our website in replays for for uh, since a few since a few years. They are either. LC buildings or indoor air conferences, all the keynotes, uh, if the, the presenters were okay, are available on our website. So I guess soon this, the keynote from this conference will also be available on uh, exact.org mm -hmm. website. That'd be great because I'm sure there are a lot of people who would be interested in the topic that you mentioned. And I've, looking at the other keynotes, I, as I said, I've been following on Twitter, they certainly sound uh, like they would be great topics for people to listen to. So I'm hoping uh, to be able to do that hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So moving on a little yeah, bit, yeah. Martin, you were, go ahead, uh, Corinne, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, they were, the keynotes are, were very inspiring and uh, the, they, they also, we also mentioned the psychosociological aspect and Martin, maybe you can go on this topic because this was an important part of the keynotes we had on Sunday and Monday. Right on. Uh, do you want me to, to wrap up, uh, continue there or you had a question for me? No, go ahead, Martin. I'm, I'll get back to the question. If you could follow up on what Corinne mentioned, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think I think it was uh, you know our our opening keynote was kind of like something different. Uh, we we are used a lot you know to to look into the physical exposure and then uh, assess the health effects and and everything related in, in that in that axis uh, as long as as far as as indirect quality is concerned. But then uh, the opening opening uh, keynote uh, also introduced the concept that you know you have you have an exposure, and then you have the individual that is exposed, and there is a physical exposure through the exposing agents, and, and you know it can be chemicals, it can be microbes, it can be whatever. But then you also have the uh, psychosocial pathway of exposure. So that means that people that are aware for example and, and and this was brought up in in the context of moisture damage and dampness and and, and specifically uh for the finnish finnish situations where uh we have like overall uh in finland of course not saying that we don't have uh, poorly performing buildings but overall if you compare to other countries our uh the chemicals in our air uh, indoors are low uh, moisture damage incidence is low um you know you, you name it we typically we we Actually, with Corinne and also Ula, we were involved in a European study uh, with like uh, 20 different countries. And, you know, you, you almost have to go to a different graph and scale in the graph uh, to, to place Finland in terms of the PM levels and so on. So we have overall good indirect quality. But then at the same time, there is a, a major 
uh, issue and major public discussion around, you know, a lot of people have symptoms, a lot of people perceive the indoor air quality poorly, a lot of uh, people uh, develop really severe symptom or symptom clusters, environmental sensitivities uh, that that uh, relate to spending time indoors. And, and you know, it, it was intriguing to figure out, like, how, how come? And, and this is where this whole concept of physical uh, pathway and psychosocial pathway is coming up. And, and one thing that is that is happening in Finland is there is a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, public discussion uh, happening uh, around indoor equality and health, uh, specifically around the issue of moisture damage and associated exposures and health. So people are really, really aware and, and really sensitive to the topic. And there is, you know, once the media gets on top of that, then there is a lot of discussion around, you know, individual, uh, you know, it, it's storytelling around uh, how a person uh, got stuck into this situation and exposed to moisture damage and, and adverse uh, adverse exposures in a building and, you know, cannot get out and, and get severely sick, uh, which are really, really tragic stories. But that that's being taken up a lot in the, in the media and, and people respond to that. So, uh, it, it was really, really interesting to see that um, there was one example around uh, reporting symptoms uh, by, by the parents of symptoms of their child in school. And, and we see really, really clearly that if the parent is exposed to poor indoor quality moisture damage uh, in their own workplace, they are more likely, like in a dose response fashion almost, they're more likely to respond uh, to to um, report higher symptom prevalence for their kids in schools, which is not linked, right? So if if the person has more issues around indoor air quality, they will report more symptoms even for their kids that are in school. What was even more in interesting and intriguing is that if you ask the kids themselves, even they will report more uh, symptoms than, uh, than, than comparison kids. And that's due to that, you know, they have discussions at, at home around the topic. They, they, they get the notion and the sensation of the parent being really worried around this topic. So there is a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of things going on. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's a big discussion here. Uh, people feel like people are, it, it's a touchy subject because people many times respond that, well, you think this is only in our heads and it's not, it's real. Every symptom is real. Every symptom has to be taken seriously. But then from a uh, standpoint of how do we manage this issue, uh, we need to understand if we have a building, we need to understand in how far the exposure is physical and where it comes from and mitigate the source, of course, and, and make the uh, situation better. But then if you, you know, try to prioritize uh, in which of the 1000 schools in Finland, we should start Re, uh, renovations immediately and which ones can wait you know you cannot completely rely on symptom reports because that is biased by you know all these things that i just tried to explain where you really have to go into complex uh or, or uh, more comprehensive building investigations and and, and uh, look into this so I, it's a really really fascinating fascinating part of of our work nowadays if we you know in my opinion if we if we want to good, have good answers for the physical exposure pathway, we need to acknowledge that there's also a psychosocial pathway because you can't assess one without uh, having some clue of the other. Sorry, that was a long answer to a short question.
And isn't it Martin also so that it's not only enough to then repair the building, but you also have to like treat the individuals more com holistically and uh, understanding these issues. Exactly, and, and recognizing uh, that there is a real problem going on, and, and like uh, giving them the attention that that is required, uh, is is absolutely crucial. And this kind of like now links to the discussion we just had about low cost sensors. You know, like if people were more aware of of the indirect quality in their space and would be also more under control. So you know, they, they see uh, CO2 is going up, and uh, simple example, and they open a window and it goes back to green, right? So em empowering the people being more under control and more aware of what's really going on in their building, I think can be helping the situation quite a bit. I mean, has there been discussion? I, you know, obviously the psychosocial effect is, is huge um, as far as uh, gender bias, potentially. In the United States, certainly there's, uh, you know, there's, there, there seems to be, at least my experience as an indoor environmental consultant, there, there does seem to be that men are less apt to complain about indoor environmental conditions here and women are more apt to and not saying you know it is it is it a psychosocial thing is it or is it more of a actual uh, physiological difference i i don't know yeah you could you know you could think uh, about perception and, and and then also about being more outspoken maybe but but then uh, that's that's a known fact uh, we know that there's certain age uh, age groups and 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 female gender that will uh, will tell more about uh, about these issues and 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 reports. Yeah. So, uh, Martin, um, other than the, that particular uh, keynote, were there other keynotes that you can give us some information about what uh, what they described and what they talked about? Well, I don't know. For the keynotes, I guess that that the the listeners can can really and should go to the ECF website because you know we 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 had these. Um, uh like really really interesting topics uh Corinne just uh, explained about Dushan Lisina and and the the green buildings and how mm -hmm. how we need to move forward with this uh what I will mention is that we had a um and I, I can tell more about the sessions later on that was something that I that I looked up for the conference but then uh I, I will mention that we had of course there were sessions around uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, not surprisingly, of course, at the conference, we did talk a lot about COVID-19 uh, and we did have a, an excellent, really high class forum um, with, with three speakers and then a lot of experts also being being uh, really present. I, I have to say I was a bit uh, starstruck to some extent because um, you know we had people like Lydia Moravska here, uh, we had um, Giorgio, uh, uh, Giorgio Buonono, uh, from from Italy, and then um, Kath Noakes, so all all people that were really centrally and crucially involved in getting the science out there to the policymakers. Basically, if you remember in in the in the early 2020, when when WHO you know started talking about that you know this is a hoax, airborne is not there. Uh, this was the group of people under that leadership that really and 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 actually a lot of the ECAC uh, members were involved and and of course also the IEQGA people and so on giving giving the the crucial information uh towards uh the recognition of airborne transmission routes and which, which then changed within uh, three months or so uh, also WHO opinion and CDC and and, and whatnot so many of these people were here, so it was it was just amazing to to be there. Uh, what I what I also really really liked is nobody anymore uh, wasted, let's say wasted, 
uh, time anymore to speak about like how did we end up here and how bad is it because we know um, you know but uh, it was a lot about um, mitigation uh, strategies to to uh, reduce transmission risk of airborne uh, of airborne transmission specifically and uh, you know a, a central topic was ventilation and and how that could help uh, and and all and and not just naively say that you know we have to ventilate more but no i mean we we, we can't always uh our building stock isn't prepared to you know just wrap up the, the ventilation everywhere plus it's it's a lot of energy use so also like thinking of other mitigation strategies but one thing that was really raised which i will uh will tell to our listeners is that um that ventilation in schools is like important really really important there is some work from the Italian group coming up uh, uh, and it really impressively shows that a school com compares the uh, airborne transmission incidents in uh, better versus worse ventilated schools in Italy and showing and, really- And Martin, yeah. it was specifically adding mechanical ventilation to right, schools right. and uh, yeah. they looked at different levels uh, right. of ventilation after installation and showed really great responses. And we all know, also know this from previous research that uh, having mechanical ventilation really seems to be pretty much the only way to be able to meet the standards, at least uh, in Finland, in the case yeah. of Finland. But in addition to that, I wanted to add that we also had in the forum Professor Arsen Melikov, and, and he gave really great ideas about uh, like personal ventilation strategies, and there are mm -hmm. like new innovations coming as well in that sector. So that's really exciting. Yeah, no, I know that in one of the t uh, tweets that I saw that they were talking about personal ventilation. Uh, the, could you give a little bit more details on that? Uh, well, Arsens showed these examples of um, like headsets that you can wear that uh, you can either have basically personal exhaust, so air is sucked from close to your mouth, or you can have a personal uh, like fresh air coming to your breathing zone. And um, I, I find that really interesting, but of course, Hopefully that technology will develop in, in the future so that um, I don't know how easy this would be in practice to wear and to provide to people. But apparently the amount of air and also maybe the energy used in this way when you uh, bring the air uh, to, to individuals is much less than otherwise needed. So it's, it's definitely something to look into and develop further. And that would be bringing yeah, in outside air or fresh air? That's that's the thought, is that directing it to the occupant as opposed to a, a portable it, breathing uh, filtration device, like a little- These were uh, portable devices, okay. yes. Okay, yes. I wear one of those actually through the whole pandemic, uh, little HEPA filtered unit with a USB powered uh, thing that hooks to an N95 mask. And uh, it's it, you know it, it, similar to a PAPR in theory, a P100 type system. But there was also discussion about other type of personnel, like if you work in a stationary um, office, let's say you can just have the air, different air distribution methods can be used. 
that that sounds similar to what I remember Oli Fanger talking about years ago in terms of personal uh, ventilation systems. Um, and it's interesting that it's coming around again. Um, it certainly would be of interest to a lot of people to determine whether that's, as you say, practical for, for um, settings such as offices and maybe schools. So, um, Martin, you were also responsible for uh, wrapping up the sessions. What are the main highlights that you can report to our audience? Well, you know, Donna, there were so many highlights that it's really, really hard. I, I, I just uh, told the same thing uh, this morning at, at, at the conference. We started off with like 30-something uh, slides of bullet points of highlights that we collected during the, the sessions. I had to burn it down, but I can give a few, few examples. Uh, I think uh, maybe things that, that, that are not necessarily uh, immediately uh, on the top of our minds when we think about indirect quality, we, we thought that there were, there were sessions around sustainable renovation uh, and, and, you know, how energy retrofits, uh, when they are performed on buildings, they should be always followed up with an indoor environmental assessment and importantly also occupant education about like, you know, Again, getting back to the point that empowering people with knowledge of, of their indoor environment, you would think that's a no-brainer, but but practically it's not being done in, in that sense. So energy retrofits are being done and that's it, right? Uh, take it or leave it. And, and then also thinking about when we when we talk about energy retrofits, trying to take this into, into the context of sustainability think about uh, durability of, of the materials that are being introduced, the life cycle assessment, and of course, also about the potential of creating harmful harmful byproducts. But these were things we discussed. We had a really, really interesting discussion also around the endomicrobiome, even though there was a, too many microbiology sessions beyond, of course, the SARS-CoV-2 sessions uh, now in, in this conference. And, and uh, you know, one of the speakers there talked about, uh, you know, we all know about the rural urban context and, and how that affects the indoor microbiome and even asthma and allergy development. And, and we are very quick to say and use urban rural as a variable that explains some of the, uh, some, uh, bless you, uh, some, some sorry, of the difference sorry. that we are seeing. Uh, but then really it's not a variable, it's a social construct, right? So if you look at rural urban, there is like so many things that are different uh, from, from aspects. Like even if you try to specify a little bit more and, and speak about surrounding greenness, uh, greenness in, 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 a, in, a, in an urban environment, you know, is a, a grass cut it loan, probably fertilized versus green in, in an, in an uh, um, uh, rural area, something completely different. So we talked a little bit about that and it, that was really interesting work. Plus, and also thinking about how we need to uh, take care in, a, in some ways of our uh, environmental microbial exposure, specific uh, uh, exposure time windows early in life. Uh, because we, we do need the contact to environmental microbes and the, and the, um, the, the immunological training and indoor microbiota has been found to be like one way, one modifiable target that, that we could go after. So that was really, really interesting stuff as well. Uh, we talked, of course, about, you know, the, the way we work uh, uh, has changed a lot. Uh, thing about hybrid work and working from home, how does that impact that performance? Uh, you know, noise uh, in, in from the remote work, noise being one of the main contributors to the well-being at work. 
everybody who has been doing remote work with the kids at home uh, absolutely will will know what we're talking about but but uh, you know also also these kind of uh, these kind of aspects and uh maybe that uh, one of the sessions that i uh, that, that one of the things that i do want to highlight also is you know that how do we prioritize uh, indoor air quality contributors because uh, like as we mentioned already in the beginning indoor air isn't well regulated and we don't enforce it uh it is our our we identify ourselves that it's our role really to to demonstrate the pathway of enforcement uh and that we need to include also performance standards and and one of the uh you know when we talk about prioritization uh we had a discussion around in how far randomized controlled trials could be useful in informing this and um yeah uh, so so these were the things uh, that, that that have been discussed we i will also uh just throw one one point out there because it's it's, it's i think close to uh the heart of many uh, at ECAG and at the conference uh, that we identified that we need to have dedicated sessions for the developing nations and the problems that uh, we really have to deal there. We need to get more of the of the people and researchers that deal with indirect quality issues uh, in places where those problems are really through the roof uh, in, in terms of like if you compare to the issues that we talk about in Europe and in, in the US, for example, so that was one thing that we identified. It's really, really important to get those people uh, to these conferences in, in whatever way possible. I mean, overall, is there was there a, a general sense that uh, this pandemic and you know this whole uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, scenario is that is that a permanent change that we're going to be facing, or is it you know is is there a feeling that we'll go back to maybe things as usual before, or will we actually use this as a stepping stone to improve our indoor environment? So I'm just curious, you know, what, what the general the, the sidebar topics, not so much the presentations, but just the the feel that you know that you had at the event, and that's out to all three of you actually. Well, I can say that uh, I think in general it eastern should be a stepping stone and there was discussion already that even if the current pandemic would be controlled we are going to have new ones and we have to be better prepared for those so i think we have to stay busy for the next years to come to try and uh, try and improve our preparedness for the future pandemics yeah i, I just can Oh, sorry, Corinne, you can go ahead. Uh, I agree with Ula. We, I, I don't think we will go back as we were before in our the previous world. I think we will. And people say, the uh, scientists say that we will have other virus because we are living closer and closer to, to animals because biodiversity bio is decreasing. So we will have new pandemics. So we can't ignore what happened and come back as business as usual. We we need to, to, to change our life. Our life has already changed and it, it will remain and it will it, it will be different. I, I think I don't think we, we can ignore we are we entered a new a new era, I think. Yeah, I, I, I can just maybe add on that, that we as a as a group of research and as a society uh, caring about indirect quality, we we completely recognize well I, I will say that we, we, we even have to 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 digest it even more uh, because now like what the pandemic did is that it put indirect quality onto the policy agenda right and it, that's that's been something that we've been after for a really really long time 
We've talked about indirect quality a lot, but really it was not on the top of the agenda. And now, uh, you know, it, it's there. And, and, you know, if we talk about uh, providing uh, um, effective means, making our buildings operate better so that we are prepared for from pandemics, it, it, in essence, it means pro uh, providing better indirect quality uh, in the bigger context. And, and so, uh, you know, this means that we, we now have an opportunity here, uh, an opportunity that goes beyond just being prepared and, and responding to the current pandemic and being prepared for future pandemics, but really actually doing something about indirect quality in buildings. And, you know, just think about schools, you know, everybody is aware of now, like what happens if uh, indirect quality in a school is, is worse. And, and, you know, there will be efforts and there will be finances and money to, to, to improve things. And, and you know, we, we just have to throw ourselves in there and, and, and really push. It's unfortunate we required a global pandemic to actually bring that awareness about. But so be it. Here we are. This is uh, you know, many yeah, times. We worked for years about schools, uh, poor ventilation and nobody was listening to us and as you say bob we need, we needed a, a crisis to raise awareness about this topic but we we did a lot of studies using co2 sensors in school and telling to the the teachers that they need to open the window if they don't have any mechanical ventilation and this was hard to motivate people they they were always saying okay there is noise outdoor it will be cold in the classroom there will be a safety issue so it was hard to convince people. So now, hopefully, people are more uh, more convinced, and hopefully, they will keep their their good practices in the future. I mean, there certainly is an acute awareness globally now. For for the first time, I believe in all of our lives, right? Indoor environments are at least at the forefront. For the time being, though, because we, as a as a species, have a tendency to have a very short attention span, and from what I see, so hopefully, we can take this forward. So one of the things that I always enjoyed uh, going to the conferences, uh, both Healthy Buildings and Indoor Air, was hearing some new topics presented during the conference. And I was wondering if each one of you could pick out one new topic that uh, that you remember was presented at this at this conference. I I'll can, start with Corinne. I yeah, I can mention one. Exposome concept was discussed during the conference. So exposome is not new because it's, it's a concept that was introduced in 2005 by uh, Christopher Wilde. Um, so it's not new, but it's newly discussed during Indoor Air Conference. Uh, so as we have a genome de describing all our genes, there is the exposome describing all the exposure from early life uh, in utero to through uh, until the end of our life, we are exposed to many many environmental factors, many, also social social environment. So all this is exposure define uh, our health and um, indoor air quality, in, indoor environment quality is part of this exposure. We are exposed to indoor air pollutants, indoor pollutants through air, to settle dust. So we indoor air science people have uh, indoor air. Researchers have a role to play in defining, in better quantifying this exposome to better understand the relation between our exposure through, throughout all our life and uh, our health. So this this was new to me, new to me during uh, during indoor air. It was it's mainly discussed in exposure science conferences. So it it's good that uh, the topic is is coming uh, among in our community. Right, Martin. So uh, any new topic? Yes, Ula, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, maybe 
little bit related to this. I was just blown away with these plenaries today, and maybe it's also because I can remember those the best, but Dusan Lissina's plenary was already mentioned, but then also Professor Joni Jakola's plenary on, on climate change, sustainable housing and planetary health. And this concept of planetary health, uh, including issues like climate change and pandemics and things that cannot be controlled on the cellular or individual or even public health level, but has to be looked at globally and uh, and understood better. So I thought that was really, really raising thoughts and and should be taken into consideration. And Martin, any new topics that you encountered? Well, definitely new new was the the introduction of the psychosocial uh, uh, mm. aspect uh, on health. But then uh, also the uh, like on a more trivial basis, uh, talking about. I, I was really surprised that there was a, a lot of uh, presentations talking about HVAC filter dust and how they can be used uh, for the monitoring uh, of uh, chemicals, monitoring of, of, of biological exposures, and then you know, like I said, with with every sample method, uh, people started looking into you know what what can that sample do and what what can it not do. Um, uh, there was a really, really interesting study being presented on, on airflow patterns across the ventilation filter and, and how that's not uniform. So, you know, if you take a sample from somewhere in that square, it's not going to be very representative. So a lot, a, lot, a lot of discussion around, you know, how can we, how can we make, uh, how can we get good representative samples for uh, exposure uh, during, during certain, certain uh, exposure periods? So, um, yeah trivial but 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 just intriguing and, and people do microbiome determinations and, and longitudinal studies from uh from hvac filter dust actually i'm just looking at ula there uh, we, we're doing a study uh, like this uh, together uh interesting stuff mm -hmm. very good and uh students uh are a big part of what we talked about with summer uh, school and things of that nature what innovative researchers were noticed and rewarded regarding student work uh, we'll start with corinne yeah, I noticed a very original and funny study, actually. We, the, it was about laundry drying emission in, in a dwelling. We, we know that laundry drying is emitted a lot of humidity and it's bad for indoor air quality because it promotes mold development. It, it's, uh, the emission from the building, building material can be higher when it's humid, but they, they, they looked at um, the VOCs that can be emitted by the, the different detergents that are used to clean the, to clean the clothes. So they, they made an ex this, this student, this is Florent Caron, he, he, he made a study in, a, in an experimental room of 40 cubic meter and he, he washed cotton towels with different uh, detergents, standard detergents, organic detergents or self-made uh, detergent and he, he measure then the, the, the indoor air quality and the VOC concentration. And you observe that uh, depending on the detergent that you are using, you can reach uh, high concentration of uh, some VOCs, terpenes, for example, or alcohols uh, over hundreds of micrograms per cubic meter. So it, it's, it's a bit trivial, but it was, it's funny. It's a, a new source of, of pollution in dwellings that, were, that was not studied um, so much before. So I, 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 re I noticed this, this presentation from this postdoc student. And Ula, do you have one uh, of the student presentations that uh, struck you? 
Well, I think the students are doing majority of the work and nothing would get done if we didn't have the students. <laughs> but uh, yes, I, um, I had five of my students presenting and it's of course really good experience for them to be able to come probably first time for many students to come in a conference and present and participate in that way. And uh, well, for example, I was impressed today about one one undergraduate student who had done a really, um, really good review on existing indoor environmental quality guidelines, and they are working to develop uh, like a rating system based on these guidelines in Latvia, who, which is the country that doesn't really have many guidelines currently there. So it's good to see that uh, that that these things are picked up by students and. Great. And Martin, did you have a student presentation that uh, struck you as well? Well, I, and I, I'm just going to completely, I think everybody should know that, that basically none of the presentations, none of the keynote lectures would be without uh, all the hard work that the students are doing uh, on, mm. on every level of the, of the career. So, so really, they are, I, 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 it would be hard to, to pick an individual one. Uh, because they, they they really are involved in everything and then of course uh, you know we, we we go out and and, and uh, some of the students can come here it's been a long travel for many of uh, many people so not everybody can can come come make make a long conference trip so it's typically the the seniors that show up uh, maybe with a, with a couple of students but yeah I, I can I can just of course there was um, presentations around cleaning and how it impacts uh, I remember one presentation also on uh, testing how, uh, pro-microbial cleaning would uh, impact the endomicrobiota. I'm sorry, I'm always talking about microbiome because that's what I'm uh, really passionate about. But uh, I, I thought it was really, really interesting, you know, the, the, the principle of applying uh, a cleaning with, with a pro-microbial agent and applying a biofilm of microbes onto a surface that would outcompete uh, the settling and, and proliferation of pathogenic species. And, and that's been done in, in hospital environments quite a bit. Uh, and we have some information and experience from there, but then we really don't know how that would work in a messy indoor environment uh, where you have a lot of microbial sources and so on. So I think there, and, and you know, of course, companies sell uh, uh, without necessarily having having all that information. So it's it's interesting where where that field is going as well. Great. Uh, I think we've topped, uh, talked about most of the topics here. Um, but I, I'm just wondering if we could go back a little bit more in terms of the global um, crisis. And it seems to be growing, you know, the uh, climate change seems to be uh, a big issue as well as indoor air quality. So it's continuing to uh, affect where we're going in the future. How is this, how is this topic now addressed in the indoor air community? Uh, start with Corinne. Yeah, this topic of climate change is more and more discussed in in our community. It's not the, it was already discussed in the past conferences, but uh, the focus was only energy efficient buildings and uh, indoor air quality. Now the, um, the what what is discussed is much larger. We discussed the, the the possibility to predict indoor air quality in the future in other climate, with high temperature, with higher outdoor 
concentration of ozone, for example, so more reactivity. Uh, buildings will change. There will be maybe more airtight, but people, people, the behavior of people will change. So there, there, are, there were several sessions um, presenting some models to to help understanding what could be indoor air quality in, in the context of climate change. We also discussed the the, the problem, the issue of urban heat uh, island. So the, this this is becoming an, an important topic and. Ula was mentioning the, the global health, planet, 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 planetary health. So this is part of the topic climate change that, that is now largely discussed in our community because this, this is not our future. This is our present. So this, this is now an, an important topic. And this was the, yeah, the plenary of uni, uh, Yakola this morning that Ula already mentioned. Great. Thank you. Uh so to summarize, uh, and the presentation is given during Indoor Air 2020, can you, Martin, perhaps give us a, a, a brief summary of what, what, what seems to be the hot, what's going forward in terms of this, these topics right now? Well, you know, like when, when coming into this, this podcast today, I thought there is like, there is actually one message that I wanted to, to get through and, and, and one topic that I really wanted to bring up. Uh, we, I, I talked about this, um, uh, about the summer school, right? That was preceding the indoor conference, and, and we had a, a great gang of people there. Unfortunately, you know, we get easily carried away. Uh, so, so during a, a friendly game of football, uh, one of the students actually broke his leg, like really yes. badly. He went to hospital, and I think it, it's been all over Twitter as well. And uh, you know, it was just, it was just unbelievable so he had surgery on sunday uh and he was supposed to present on wednesday and he, he was like on pain medication and whatnot and his biggest concern his biggest worry was that you know he's missing the opportunity to discuss with other scientists and with other researchers this topic to miss the opportunity to present his work and and, and you know get some feedback and that would bring him forward and honestly and and, and don and and uh, corinne and and uh, ula we've been We've been around in the field for a while, and you know, during these conferences, you end up in these um, meeting sessions where you know people fall silent because you know you realize that. Uh, so how can we? How do we continue? How do we push things forward? How do we bring things on the agenda? How how do we change what has been going on for the past thirty years? And then you see this young, uh, extremely bright and 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 passionate uh, researchers coming up, and you feel like a bit more at peace and I think that you know they, they're gonna they're gonna take over and 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 get the new energy in so to me this was the maybe the uh, the most inspiring moment of the whole conference he delivered this talk directly from the mm -hmm. from the hospital uh life so so it was it was great to see and, and there are so many there's so much talent out there and people care and I think also that is something where the pandemic really really uh you know kicked us in there is more interest in in, in this field now Great, great. Ula, do you want to summarize uh, what you uh, saw at this uh, conference? Well, I think it for me it was 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 mostly just this coming back together after the long break and meeting pers in person and being able to discuss about ongoing issues and and planning new collaborations and and also participating in in fun social activities. Luckily, it was only one one leg that we was broken, but, uh, <laughs> but we yeah, don't want anybody was... else to break their legs, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's good that there's only one leg broken. I, I would agree. Uh, Corinne, uh, 
given uh, that there are future conferences coming up, perhaps you could give us a little details what ISIAC has planned for the, the near future. Yes, we have two healthy buildings uh, 2023 next year. One in The first one in Germany in June in uh, Haren, and uh, the second one in July in Tianjin, China. So if you missed Indoria 2022, join us uh, next year during healthy buildings 2023. Great. That's terrific. So we're out of time. Uh, I really appreciate our guests today being uh, very open and very and very uh, good in terms of providing us with an insight into what, what happened in Indoor Air 2022. So back to uh, to Bob. Yeah, uh, thanks so thanks so very much. Uh, I, this was great, and, and it was uh, you know relatively technical technical difficulty free. You know, bringing you halfway around the planet. So that was great. Um, yeah, so uh, we uh, you know we'll be back again next month. Uh, for another show, um, where will we be? We don't know yet, Donna. We'll probably we'll probably be in our static positions. I'm assuming, but I just wanted to again mention that this show is a uh, collaboration between ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance (IEQGA), uh, partnered together with us at Healthy Indoors to create this program, and we're excited to continue uh, bringing these shows to you on a monthly basis. So uh, I guess for Don and for all of our guests, uh, we will see you shortly and uh, stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you.